Welcome to Leveling the Playing Field, a podcast featuring women who work in sports. My name is Bobby Sudoyle Hazard, and I am your host. This week's episode is one that had me laughing pretty much nonstop. Whitney Holtzman is the president and CEO of Social Victories, a marketing and social media consulting company for those in the sports world. Um, the conversation is, uh, well, I'm literally just laughing for the first half of it, and then it kind of rolls into some more serious things. So um, uh, luckily, it's not a, a hard uh, transition there. But uh, we talk about her career and how some of the people that she's worked for have really changed her life, like Gary Vaynerchuk from uh, VaynerMedia and Brandon Marshall um, and the people at the Rise organization. So I think it'll be really interesting to everybody. She started off as an intern, um, as a production assistant, and now she has that job that didn't even exist when she was in high school. Before we get into the episode real quick, though, um, a couple of uh Little notes, we want to make sure that you all remember that uh, applications are due for the Winning Edge Leadership Academy on February 1st. So get those in if you are a uh, minority or female college athlete or former college athlete interested in working in sports business. Fill out that application. You'll be spending a couple of days with some really great mentors, including ESPN College Game Day's Maria Taylor. And there'll be a guest appearance by me one day. Um, and let's get into the interview. Hi, Whitney. Hi, Bobby Sue. Thanks for being in my apartment with Jerry. I just recording. got here. <laughs> We've been talking for like, I don't know, three hours already. <laughs> and we could keep going. Um, so thanks for being on. I really appreciate it. The honor is all mine. The first question I tend to start with is, how did you fall in love with sports? This is my favorite question to answer. So, uh, when I was growing up, my mom used to have meetings on Monday nights and she would always, you know, tell my dad, you have one night of the week that you're in charge of putting the kids to bed. And just by the time I get home, make sure that they're asleep. And she would come home from her meeting on Monday nights and he'd have one of us under each arm watching Monday night football. Uh, and that's how I fell in love with sports. I started doing it because it was an activity uh, to spend time with him. And then we started going to Bucks games growing up. And um, that's how I fell in love with sports. And I remember when they won the Super Bowl, I was so excited. I didn't know what to do. So I made a whole scrapbook. Like I have an itinerary of every minute of their Super Bowl journey. <laughs> <laughs> I'll have to bring it, bring it to you at some point. But um, yeah, and I realized when I got into high school that when I didn't want to do homework or anything else, sports was my escape. And I just thought life is too short to not do something that you absolutely love. So I'm just going to go work in sports. That's the only thing I want to do. There was no plan B. So did you play sports growing up? So it's interesting. I played sports, but I was like average at best. You know, I played basketball. Um, thank God my school had a no cut policy. Otherwise, I don't know if I would have played sports. Um, <laughs> it was good exercise. And, um, you know, I had a lot of good postgame snacks. Uh, but... <laughs> I don't think that's the, <laughs> I don't think that's the reason that I love sports. It tr I truly love all of the men's sports that my dad loved and, you know, had us watch growing up. Like I'm a diehard football fan. Football's number one. And, you know, baseball, hockey, basketball, those that kind of rounds out out the group of my favorite sports. So, you know, I think there is a, a group of people who love sports because they played them and they were probably good. So that's why they love them. But for me, uh, I was not in that category. So it was truly because 
I absolutely loved watching sports. In fact, I became so passionate, especially about football, that like when there was a close game, I, ha- I was hiding in the bathroom. Like I could barely go and watch because it, it, it was live or die for me. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I, the snacks. Yeah. It's gave me. Um, well, I, have to, I have to tell you, so I'm running my first uh, half marathon at the end of February, which um, if I finish it, it will be something that I, tr- I truly thought was impossible. But the one thing that's kept me going is that I, I know that my whole life I've been training for the post-race uh, meal. So um, I, I think that sort of has, has qualified me to participate. Well, and the carbo loading. Yeah, exactly. The pre-race. Yeah, those people have to carbo load the night before. I'm like, I have 30 years under my belt. It should be no problem. So... What kind of snacks did they have at ballet class? <laughs> so I don't remember what kind of snacks um, they had at ballet. Um, unfortunately, uh, I got kicked out um, before I was old enough to, to retain what the snacks were. So um, it, it's, my gracefulness started very young at age three. Um, they had the recital and everyone was doing uh, the proper graceful poses. And then there was me. Uh, I ran in front and did a somersault. I thought that we needed to take it, it up a notch. It was just a little boring for the crowd. We needed some excitement, something to happen. Um, and the teacher politely asked me to never return and suggested maybe I enroll in gymnastics. <laughs> okay. So <laughs> who gets kicked out of anything at age three? Like I already was messing up. Oh, I mean, I probably did. Yeah. Um, but you took classes to get to that recital, correct? Right, exactly. And and how did those go? I, I was I got kicked out so young, I can't even remember the class. I mean, apparently this incident is on video, and people have told me about it. But you know, I don't think I don't think ballet was my calling. So I think it's for the best that I probably did not retain much of what took place. However, when I lived in New York and I would go see the fancy ballets, I for a minute I thought, well, what could have been. <laughs> Okay, um, so this is allegedly on video. Apparently. Hopefully it's on Why some... apparently? You've not seen this? So I've been told it is, but we don't know where the videotape is. And hopefully it's in some format that no player will play it in 2018. Okay, you, have, you were born in like the 90s. So I was born in 1987, there. all right. Okay, it's in a format we've all been yeah. able to get into digital. Yeah, well, it's funny because, you know, I was always, uh, you know, uh, what you would consider a fairly good kid growing up didn't really get into I don't anything know about bad. That now. Yes, it's very believable. Strike that from the record. Very believable. But um, we at my house used to have a timeout chair because I apparently like to push the limit growing up. So people would come over and I take them on the tour of the house. And the first thing I showed them was the timeout chair because it's where I spent most of my time. But I told my parents they just kind of, uh, you know, d- didn't call it the right thing. It, it, it's really that I was entrepreneurial growing up. They just misnamed it. And thought it was acting out. And, you know, now it's kind of been beneficial for me, you know, kind of forging my own path. But they they didn't understand they were supposed to celebrate that behavior at the time. Were you four when you told them you were <laughs> entrepreneurial? Uh, you know, I think it's just recently that I've I've learned about the word. And it was actually really funny because I was speaking about a year ago to a group of high school kids. And one kid raised their hand and said, you know, have you always been entrepreneurial? And I laughed because they only call it that when it works. You know, when I was growing up and said, mom and dad, I want to be the sideline reporter on Monday Night Football. And, you know, I come from two lawyers. They said, do you think you could pick a job with more than one opening? So I said, of course, I'll do Sunday Night Football as well, which just doubled my <laughs> options. And I don't think they had a response to that. But I think for the first, you know, five or six years of my career path, they were probably freaking out and, you know, kind of doing her own thing. They, they don't call it entrepreneurial until years later when you've started making some money from it. 
you know, the sad part about the there's only one position is what they meant was there's only one position for a female reporter in sports. That's true. Which is sad. Right. It's very sad. We're changing that. Yeah. You're the person to do it without a doubt. Oh, yeah. No, I not. I mean, there are other people. Laura Oakman's doing a phenomenal job. Maria Taylor. I mean, we got people on it. Well, I think the coolest part is that was my dream job because that's what I saw on TV growing up. But my actual career path, you know, went in a direction where I held the exact same roles that men did. Yeah, that's true. So um, when you were picking out what school to go to, I mean, you knew in high school you wanted to work in sports. So how did you um, choose what school you wanted to go to? So this is a really funny story. I went to a really... You? A funny story? (laughs) I know. Very surprising. So I went to a pretty intense private school where pretty much in kindergarten, they, um, the first word we learned how to spell was Harvard. So, you know, everyone, you know, you were, you were told as you, you know, went through school that kind of the college that you go to is really important. And that's the end goal at the, you know, at the end of this whole thing is to go to a very prestigious college. And when I started looking at colleges in high school, um, I went to one particular school, um, you know, smaller school. I thought that's what I wanted, a prestigious small private school. And they took us on a tour of the campus and we walked past the football stadium and there were like 15 people in the crowd. And I thought I raised my hand on the tour and said, your intramural program looks amazing. Um, Where is your real football stadium and team? And she said, that's it. And I left the tour at that moment. And it was kind of a realization, you know, as I learned about myself and knew I had to stay true to myself that I needed a big football school. Uh, And I'm a wimp when it comes to cold weather, born and raised in Tampa. So big football school in a warm climate, left only a few options. So I went and looked at Texas, Florida, and FSU. Luckily got into all of them, but um, you know, Florida had bright futures and it was two hours from home and I'm super close with my family. And I walked on campus and it had kind of a Northern feel. And I just said, uh, I know this is where I belong. And, you know, when it comes to big decisions you have to make in life career wise, or, you know, at least for me, college included, you know, I always say it's kind of like a spouse, you know, you can't predict what it's going to be. You just know it when you see it. And that's the way when I stepped onto UF's campus, I could have never known for sure what exactly I wanted. But when I stepped onto the campus, it had everything that I was looking for. And I tell kids now, you know, if I had gone to Harvard, I'm sure it would have been a great experience. But I ultimately wanted to go into sports broadcasting. And so UF, you know, I got to work at the TV station. It was during the Tim Tebow era. We won basketball and football championships. It was the perfect school for me at the perfect time. So go to the place, you know, that's going to open the doors that you want to open, not what everyone else is doing. Aaron Andrews is an alum of there, right? Yes. Yeah. So that's helpful. Exactly. Probably one of the more well-known alums. And she was she was one of the first really well-known people in the sports world, well-known women in the sports world to come from Florida. And I think, you know, her career has done a lot for the school to really put it on the map. And actually now Laura McKeeman, who's on um, ESPN College Game Day shows with Tim Tebow, was also an alum. And uh, we were the same year. Interesting. Mm-hmm. So you were a sports management major during some journalism or were you a minor in sport management? Exactly. Option B. I majored in journalism. And it's funny because in high school, you know, I didn't know that that was a possibility. I didn't know there was a path for me in the world. I didn't even know that I could enjoy learning or, you know, um, you know, that there was a career path that, that I really fit in or could excel at because, you know, we had the typical subjects. And I just knew I loved current events. And when I got to college and there was a journalism major, I was like, finally, something for me. 
Um, and so I absolutely loved it. And I figured no matter kind of what I did from there, a journalism degree would be helpful and then did the concentration in sports management. Whitney had a really, really tough childhood with two very <laughs> uh, successful attorney parents. In fact, I used to get upset with them because in like fourth grade, they would edit my field trip forms <laughs> <laughs> with releases. And I used to cry. I'm not going to be able to go on the trip, you know, heretofore to the dinosaur. It's like, can't you just let me be like all the other kids? See also what my children will go through if I Ex- ever become <laughs> Exactly. Parent. And um, my brother actually used a story for his law school essay. But when I was little, my cousin used to test me on baseball players. So he would say the first name and I would say the last name. So my mom is a labor and employment lawyer. And my cousin got to Cecil Fielder and he said Cecil. And I said harassment. (laughs) 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 So law has been ingrained within me in an early age. And everyone, my brother's in law school, too. So I don't know if I'm the black sheep or the one who got away. And everyone says, you know. Did you want to become a lawyer? And was like, heck no, like one more dinner talking about mediation. I just couldn't do it. Yeah, I agree with you. Yeah. You're the worst. Oh, sorry. You're a lawyer. I hope none of that was hurtful. Oh, you know, it's <laughs> fine. I'm used to it. I will say that they are very helpful to have around. Now, when I have a legal question, I just text the family chain. Again, rough childhood of yours. <laughs> you, your first job <laughs> in sports. Um, you were an intern for the Tampa Bay Rays. I was. What's that like, uh, being an intern for your local team? It was a dream come true. I mean, it was great. I worked in stadium operations, so I got the ability. I think internships are great because, you know, they sort of have an end date. So you get to spend as much time, you know, while you're there learning about what you love and what you don't love. And you can take that back and apply it to your um, you know, next career decision. But I feel so grateful because I think that everyone wants to be the second person to open the door for you. Um, they want someone else to legitimize you with experience. So I am forever indebted to the Rays because they were the first people ever who took a chance on me. And to me, you know, everyone who comes before uh, makes everything now possible. And had they not given me that internship, I don't know that I would have been able to pursue my passion at some point. I would have probably had to accept that I needed to take a, a different career path. So the fact that after my freshman year, um, you know, I was able to have an internship in sports, it really gave me hope and the experience that I needed to be able to go on the path that, you know, I was most passionate about. I will tell you uh, <laughs> uh, probably my finest moment there. Um, I was the Aquafina bottle in the soda race. Yes. Um, talk about showing off my tremendous athletic ability. Um, <laughs> my fellow interns signed me up. I did not elect to participate. Um, and I forgot that I was in a bottle. So like people would be smiling and waving and I would smile back. I forgot that they couldn't see me. Um, (laughs) and so, you know, the race is like in the fifth inning and, um, the shoes were huge. They, they're not fitted to your feet. So they're like size 12 and I wear an eight. And so the race started and I was like nine miles behind. And I think they even ended the race before I finished. And I remember the Rays were playing the White Sox and AJ Pierzynski looked at me and said, you looked really flat out there trying to make a soda joke. Oh. So it makes for a really great story, but I don't think anyone thought I had a career in it. And in fact, I think my fellow interns who signed me up, uh, it probably went even better for them than they expected. It's so mean. (laughs) That's so great. So stadium operations, can you talk a little bit about what that is and what you did other than be a flat water bottle? (laughs) That was pretty much it. No, Um, it was actually really cool for me, too, because you know, I didn't know stadium operations even existed. And I think internships are great for that. Like you get to learn about the different departments that are available. And 
especially in the intern world, like you tend to stick together because you're around the same age group. So you get to learn what the other interns um, are doing. So uh, stadium operations, I got there at like 10 or 11 in the morning and stayed until about midnight or one in the morning. You had to wait till every game was over. And, you know, we helped direct people to their seats. Um, if there was a spill, you know, we let the let the team know so they could help clean that up. Um, you know, pre- it was pretty much a customer relations and making sure everything went off without a hitch. And, um, you know, if, if anyone needed medical attention or anything, you know, we directed them to where they needed to go. And, you know, it was amazing to me because it was the first time that I realized, like, multiple people's entire job was running the video board. Like, you go to a game and it just all goes so seamlessly and there's so many that happen on a nightly basis, you don't realize all that goes into it. And I think that was the biggest eye opener for me is what it really takes to put on one single sporting event for a few hours. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I know with us, God, I can't even tell you how many people are involved with things that go up on the video board. I mean, it's just, it's insane. And the amount of time, um, luckily we have fewer games, but you know, um, it, it is a lot and internships are great. I think they're so important for people mm-hmm. to get their foot in and your internship path led you to some really cool ones aside from, you know, working for the hometown team, which is probably like the number one thing, right? Um, you, you did a lot of like production internships, which I find fascinating. What kind of production was it? So um, I was, uh, I would say the first, um, production internship I had was at uh, Turner Sports in Atlanta. Um, and I learned, it was really the, my first experience into learning what happens, you know, to, to put a game on the air and, and bring it to life and all the bu- behind the scenes stuff that goes on. And I remember um, slightly embarrassing moment. I was on the tour for my first day and I said, um, oh, TBS. So where are the Cartoon Network studios? And then they informed me that, yes, there's yeah, not a studio for that. Anyway, um, we, <laughs> we had a really great, the, the, the team at Turner Sports was incredible. They gave us so many different opportunities and um, we got to film NBA highlight reels. And, um, you know, they gave us so much experience in, in terms of being able to help build up our career. So they really took the time. You know, we we helped blog the games and stuff and, um, you know, help the highlight team put together highlights. But they really took the time to make sure that we got everything that we needed and all the experience possible to be able to build a reel for ourselves to kind of open the door for our own career. So that was pretty incredible. And then the next summer, um, I got an internship doing this relatively the same position at ESPN. And I was really lucky because um, when I interviewed, they had actually filled all 50 slots. And the guy that I interviewed with, I still keep in touch with to this day, Fred Brown, and credit him with opening the door for me and, you know, really making my career possible. Um, but after our interview, he fought three different people to create a 51st spot at ESPN. And, um, that really was a game changer because it was sort of the biggest opportunity that I had had up until this point and a huge name on, on my resume. And I had made it to the top and I felt like, you know, that's what I, that's where I always wanted to be. Um, and you know, he was sort of the person that made it possible. And so it was great when I was there, um, each intern at ESPN is given a position that real people there hold. So you, you're an intern at orientation, but after that, you know, you hold a real job and they trusted us. Um, you know, with huge stuff, which I think was really great leadership. We weren't treated as interns. And even though they're the biggest deal, they didn't look down upon us or were worried about what we might do. They just wanted to give us the chance to succeed. And so um, I made highlights for Sports Center and Baseball Tonight, and I would watch an entire game, write down what I wanted the highlights, you know, for that game to be. The editor would put it together, and then I'd run across the hall and take the script uh, to the anchor who was, you know, during a commercial break, explain what, you know, I was talking about very quickly. And then they were reported on air. So 
I got to call home and say, you know, at 11, 17, you're going to see the highlight that I created. That's really cool. Did you ever mess with any of the anchors and like put in something random? So uh, I never I never mess with them. Um, I know it seems like I'm perfect, uh, but actually the truth is I'm far from it. And I definitely made mistakes that they read on air and you felt really bad about it because, you know, they trusted you with reading the correct information, but they were great in that they didn't hold it against you. And I think that's the best way to learn any lesson is to make a really big mistake. Uh, and then you never make that mistake twice. Besides your internships that you had formalized, mm-hmm. you also did a lot of writing and reporting while in college, um, just like during the semester and stuff, which is really great as well, I think. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So I think the biggest thing was on Friday mornings, um, I did the sports on the TV station um, and it was cool. It was broadcast all the way to Jacksonville. So, um, you know, we would go to the different practices and team events and the TV station there was amazing. They would let us, um, you know, do live broadcasts and live reports. And then, um, you know, I'd come back on Friday and, and anchor the sports show on the TV station. What time in the morning was that? It was so early. Uh, it was, I think I had to get up at seven and the show started at eight. and. Um, you know, I, uh, I think it limited the number of viewers we had, which may have been a blessing (laughs) in disguise. It was funny. I was actually like, you know, a few months later in a class at one point and, you know, talking to the class and someone raised their hand and said, are you the girl, you know, on the sports show? And I'm like, you're the one who's been watching all this time. (laughs) So that was, that was really amazing. And I think what I'm so grateful for and sort of recapping these stories is, you know, ESPN and these companies and then at UF, no one ever said you're a kid or you don't have a lot of experience. Everyone just completely flung the door open. And even if I wasn't perfect, they gave me opportunities that changed my life. And I think it's so important to be the person that opens the door for people. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. I absolutely agree to that. Um, so we all know you peaked when you worked for ESPN. <laughs> I thought I peaked at the water bottle. Um, well, um, <laughs> ballet. Um, right. oh. It was over over early. um, But your first like full-time job was actually really, really cool. You worked for my uh, major league baseball as a, you know, when I graduated college, such a thing did not exist. They're social media production person. Yep. So I actually tell kids, you know, now if you don't know what you want to do, it's okay. Because my job didn't exist when I was in high school. And actually, my first job was with ESPNW right out of college. I don't know if I've ever told you the story, but when I was at ESPN, um, I had this idea that they should name the Spanish channel Espanol. So I emailed John Skipper, who, you know, then became president. Uh, I think at the time he was either president or head of content. And he was like, well, no, but you should come meet with me. So I went and met with him. (laughs) And I was he was like, you know. Okay, like, thanks for the idea. Again, no, but um, we are starting this women's initiative called ESPNW. And because my name was Whitney, I was wearing a W necklace. I'm like, I've already got your gear on. This is perfect. So he introduced me to the person, you know, running the show. And luckily they were launching as I was coming out of college. Um, So they were willing to take a chance on someone new. And it's interesting because everyone told me along the way, you know, I said, I want to work at ESPN. I always kind of aimed high. And they said, well, first you have to go and work for 20 years and you start a really small market and work your way up. And I said, well, just because that's what everyone else has done, why is that what I have to do? Why can't I forge my own path? And sure enough, my first job out of college was working for ESPNW and the mothership. Troublemakers making their own way in life. Exactly. And I was just funny because um, 
my dad is from New York. And so I grew up a Yankees fan and I had had the Bucks as, you know, home. I think I love sports so much because I, I love Tampa where I grew up and they were um, such a pride of the city. And I was, I remember when I was working for the Rays, um, there was a moment where the Yankees were playing the Rays and something good happened for the Yankees. And I just didn't clap. And it was a moment that probably divided my family forever, but also that, you know, really changed me. And it's what officially made me a Rays fan. I think when you pour your blood, sweat and tears into something, um, you know, you just fall in love with it. And that's truly when I became a Rays fan, there's, there's no taking that away from me ever. Like I love that team. Yeah. I can also attest to that. I had that experience this year at home and right. Yeah. And now I just can't even watch the other team. Um, (laughs) Tell us what you did at ESPNW then. Okay. So, um, I was probably the fourth or fifth employee. Um, I, you know, at night, um, I would stay up and watch all the sporting events. And then I wrote an article every single night that recapped what happened in the world of sports. Um, I started a series called power players, which highlighted women who work on the business side of sports. And then I had a series called captain's corner where every single day I found a captain of a high school team, um, that I interviewed and got their advice and, you know, wrote articles. So I was writing, reporting, editing, and was working at night and during the day. Um, my article at night was called about last night, but I had so much fun coming up with the headlines. And I remember at ESPNW, you know, I was basically freelance coming out of college and they wanted me, uh, the week of the Super Bowl. It was in Dallas that year to write an article about how much food was consumed at the Super Bowl. So this was on a Friday and Super Bowl Sunday. And somehow I got in touch with everyone at Cowboys Stadium, the head chefs and like, you know, got the statistics about whatever, 40,000 pounds of hot dogs and however many kernels of popcorn. And that article ended up earning me a full time job with them. That's fantastic. Yeah, of course, it would be food that made it all possible. My best friend. We go back to snacks. (laughs) Right. Um, There's a team. Right. And did you how did you get the MLB job? then? So. Really interesting when I um, so while I was working for ESPNW, I moved to New York um, and I could work from anywhere at the time and was just ready for a little bit of a different adventure. And then I saw on Craigslist uh, posting for a social media coordinator at Major League Baseball. And I didn't even know if it was real because it was on Craigslist. But I thought, you know, (laughs) I am tweeting about baseball for fun. I can't believe someone would be willing to pay me for this. So I have to go after it. And um, sure enough, it was real. And I uh, had one interview and I could tell it really well. So they brought me back for a second one and I had no idea this was coming. They actually gave me a baseball test. Um, Oh no. Surprise. (laughs) Um, And so, you know, I uh, knew a lot of baseball players in the common names, but I didn't know some of, you know, the newer guys in the league. Um, And they asked you to write a paragraph about each player. So I was like, okay, well, here's what I'm going to do. I flipped the paper over and I wrote every single team and named at least one player from that team. So I thought, well, I may not know everything they're asking, but at least I'll show them what I do know. And then I ended up getting the job. That's a really ingenious response. That means a lot. A, a problem. Is every, everyone up question. until this point just thinks I'm crazy with my antics. You know, they're not calling it entrepreneurial yet. So ingenious means the world. Yeah, I mean, I could only take Scantron tests, so I couldn't get away with that bullshit. But, you know, whatever. Same thing. Exactly. I'm just trying to be supportive. Right. I think, you know, everyone gets so tied up in doing what they think they're supposed to do or what they're asked. And they don't, you know, take a step back to see if there's another path that they could possibly take. And I feel like that's been the lesson my whole life is just because everyone is going left doesn't mean you can't go right and it's not going to work. Like, go with your gut if you think it's the right move. When you, what did you do while you were there? I mean, obviously you tweeted about baseball, but there has to be more than just flying fingers on a keyboard and ranting. Yep. 
So uh, we worked every day from between about 6 p.m. to 2 and I'm sorry, we started every day about 6 p.m. and then worked until between 2 and 5 in the morning because we had to wait until all the games were over on the West Coast. So the number of times that I tweeted, uh, what times, what time does McDonald's start serving breakfast is more than any other human being should ever have to. But it was the greatest time ever. I mean, I was 23 and um, I will say I had moved from Florida. So no one told me the sun set at like four o'clock. So I walked to work in the dark while everyone else was coming home. So like that was actually the hardest part to, to overcome. Um, but you know, we, our, our office was like a bar without the alcohol. We had TVs everywhere. We had all these young people and we had a spreadsheet of about 700 cells. So for every team, um, we had a list of what they wanted to handle social media wise and what we were supposed to handle. So you almost had to have that memorized and, you know, to show you how long ago it was, I mean, Instagram was invented while I was there. So that became something that we added to the list. Oh my God, you're so old. Yeah. (laughs) Ancient. Hashtag dinosaur. (laughs) Um, But it was, I mean, they were very much on the frontier in the sense that they were really one of the first companies that started using social media for marketing purposes. I mean, really at the time, other companies didn't have social media as as part of their, you know, um, in-house offerings. So they were really on the forefront. And, um, you know, for some teams, we did scoring updates and, um, you know, others we did behind the scenes stuff. You know, there were teams that had five social media people and some teams that had none. So it just really varied about, um, you know, what, what we would do on e- each team's account. But it really was a partnership between us and then um, the people on the ground at each of the teams. And we actually had a really cool program called um, Real Time Correspondence, where in every city we had, um, it was pretty much a college kid for the most part, but someone who would go and collect really cool behind the scenes content so that we could focus on what was going on with the games and they would send it back. And it's where we got some of our best content. And I thought that was a really amazing program because it gave college kids this opportunity to work in sports. But you, as social media especially continued to grow, you really needed someone to capture like the hard hitting stuff that was going on and the scoring. And so people following along could know what was going on. But the story behind the story was just as big of a deal. I have to take a breath for Whitney because <laughs> she has the amount of energy that uh, my heartbeat had <laughs> after I had an epinephrine shot today. So, yeah, this um, is just Monday. This is just her normal. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> You know, it's funny that you mentioned that about the local correspondence because I remember you and I having a conversation recently Mm -hmm. about um, me speaking at events and what your advice to me was to get content from those events. Can you share with the class? Absolutely. Um, I always say document everything because access is the best form of content. It's why people love reality TV. And I think social media especially has an authenticity to it. So you know, it's not a billboard. It's not a pamphlet. You know, the the captions are how you would talk to someone if you ran into them in the street. And so what really connects with people is real on social media. And what people want to see is you going about your day. And as social media has evolved, you know, especially with Instagram stories and Snapchat stories, it allows us to see more of that. And people crave that. Like there's when when they're passionate about someone or love following them, there's n- no amount of content you can give them that's too much. And what did advice did you give me for when I'm actually on stage? I said, find someone in the crowd who can take pictures and videos of you. I'm sure at a college, there's probably someone who knows how to use a cell phone and social media. So it's not difficult to find and have them capture some of the content because that's going to give people uh, so much knowledge and insight into what you're doing on a daily basis. And that's what builds the relationship. And it's such a small lift, but people don't think to take the time to do it, but it really gives people behind the scenes look 
at who you are and what you're doing and allows them to build a relationship with you. I'm really just having her recount that <laughs> so that it sticks in my brain. And, um, and it's on, uh, you know, we have it, you know, we have witnesses so that we make sure that you do it. <laughs> uh, because I am speaking at a few events coming up. So she's um, a big deal. We're, <laughs> uh, we're going to try and do that. You, um, Speaking of which, what are the social media accounts for your, your podcast? Well, so everyone Whitney, can follow along. I keep begging them to follow along. It's at LTPF pod on everything. Okay. Instagram, Facebook, the Twitterverse. We should just not continue until everyone takes a moment right now to follow along. While you're at it, <laughs> rate and review the podcast. Thank you to the 20 people who have done so. We are a five-star podcast. Okay. That was our little <laughs> mid-roll ad. So, uh, Whitney. Yes. <laughs> because you don't like to do things the way anybody would do things. Mm -hmm. How did... Was that a compliment? How did... <laughs> Silence crickets. <laughs> yes. How did you get your job at Vanner Media? Okay, so Gary Vaynerchuk is my hero. He was I, he your hero before this? Uh, before this podcast, no. <laughs> he was also my hero yesterday. Before before uh, this antic of yours. Um. So I didn't know about him before. <laughs> okay. Um, but once I learned about him, he quickly became my hero. So I was in Major League Baseball at the time, and I was flying to a wedding right around Thanksgiving time. And uh, LaGuardia is, um, you know, not... A hot mess. Uh, yeah. It's not exactly known for its niceness, but no one talks about um, the greatest part of LaGuardia, which is when you're sitting at a gate, you can order a pizza to the gate from the iPads. And I thought that was the greatest thing I've ever heard. Um, here we go back to food again. Um, it's I need one of those in my, my life. Oh, wait, I can do that. Never mind. Go yeah. on. Yeah. Uh, Uber Eats. Anyway. Um, so, you know, sitting at the gate and I was like, oh my gosh, like this is the most exciting thing I've ever heard. I can order a pizza to the gate. Like, I don't think life gets better than this. And it happened. It was a real thing. And <laughs> they brought it to me. And while I was eating it, I thought, well, I guess I'll just read this iPad because it's the only thing that's here with my pizza. And the first story in the New York Times was VaynerMedia. And it was the first time I had really heard about a company that did social media for a lot of different companies. Because um, at the time, if a company had social media, it was in-house. But there were very few agencies out there um, who had various clients. And I thought that was a really cool concept. And I just love how they treated their employees and, and coworkers like a family. You could tell they had an amazing culture. And um, I've always loved people and my favorite thing. And so when I realized that there was... Um, the special place out there um, where everyone was so happy. Um, you know, I, I just knew it was exactly where I belonged. And so I got on the plane, bought Wi-Fi, found Gary's email it address. It was $100 at the time. <laughs> Remember, I'm only 30. So actually, this was like a few years ago. Anyway. Um, <laughs> was go, go really it, get you. Yeah. And it doesn't work. It was the one moment go, go worked. I think that's more noteworthy because the email went through. This <laughs> podcast episode is obviously not sponsored by GoGo in-flight Wi-Fi. It's actually sponsored by JetBlue Fly-Fi. <laughs> hey, that's a free one, JetBlue. Yeah. JetBlue. Well, we live in Tampa, and I know you guys fly a lot of places from here. So anyway, you're welcome. Um, <laughs> so, you know, we got, I got on the plane, bought Wi-Fi, found Gary's email address, and said, I just read about you at Gate D4, um, and I need to come work for you. And, you know, it probably sounded crazy, but, you know, the guy being the saint that he is, you know, read my resume, read my email, passed it along, 
I came in for interviews. And what I loved is at the time, the company had the employees interview potential employees to make sure you would be a fit with the culture. So I had two rounds of that and then ended up getting the job. And Gary completely changed my life. You know, I remember my first day, I called my family at home and said, I found an island of my people um, because Gary really emphasized EQ, which I didn't even know that was a thing. And it really validated my whole life because I went through school not thinking there was a place for me and not realizing I had strengths. And it really, you know, I, I learned that really my strength was people and relationships. And that was called EQ. And I, I not only didn't, didn't know it existed, but I didn't know someone could celebrate it and see it as valuable. And that's really what Gary did. And he's, you know, I think of him as the male Oprah. And there was so much he taught me along the way. So many life lessons about, you know, doubling, tripling, going a hundred times down on your strengths and taking the high road and um, not, not worrying about, you know, things that you're not good at because you can try your hardest to be the best chemist. But if that's not your natural strength, you're, you're not going to be, you know, the best at it really, you know, have the self-awareness to know what you're great at. And there were so many lessons like that. And you know, he, he treated his company the same way. So if, you know, there was an issue between an employee and a manager, it wasn't anyone's fault. It just may not have been the right fit. You know, he used so much common sense along the way and he knew that you were going to succeed at accounts that you loved. And so, you know, I was grateful that he put me a lot on a lot of the sports accounts, um, got to work on the Miami Dolphins and, and I learned so much from him. It was like the Harvard of social media in terms of, you know, MLB, I really honed it on content. And I think when it came to Gary, it was like taking a deep dive underwater in VaynerMedia um, and really learning, you know, how to monetize and all the strategies and best practices behind social media. So really, you know, between MLB and VaynerMedia, I got this really unbelievable social media education and just happened to be in the right places at the right time that kind of allowed, um, you know, that to be, you know, MLB, it was like as social media was just becoming a big deal. And so we, we just focused on content and VaynerMedia. I was employee 167. They have 800 employees now. And so I got to be there at a really special time when I was able to get a great education and learn a lot. Do you and Uncle Gary talk a lot now? Yeah, he's coming to Tampa February 13th. I can't wait. And actually, um, he's a very busy guy, but he, no matter what he has going on, you know, he knows pretty much every famous person in the world. He would still say, you know, hey, Whitney, um, you know, are you feeling better from the flu you had last Tuesday? He really made you feel like you were the only person in the world. And um, I owe him the last two jobs I've gotten working at Rise and um, with Steve Ross of the Dolphins and um, the job working for Brandon Marshall. Those were all because of Gary. And the guy knows every person in the world. And yet he still took the time, even after I was no longer at his company, to think about what would be a good fit for me, which kind of shows what an extraordinary person he is. That's awesome. Um, What does he speak about when he has these events? Um, So he gives really amazing keynotes. And part of it is, you know, he tells his own story that when he was eight years old, he picked flowers out of his neighbor's yard and then sold them back to the neighbor. Stop it. I did this too. Okay. Well, see, you're meant to be a superstar. But I think his point in all of that is, you know, he was getting D's and F's in school. And this is, you know, his story that I'm just repeating. He tells this in his keynotes, but he realized early on what his strengths were. And that's what's so important. So many people are trying to be someone else. And he had the self-awareness in fourth grade, even when, you know, other parents were saying to their kids, don't play with him. He's kind of a screw up. He knew he was a salesman at heart and just very early on went all in on that. And um, he also talks about sort of how his understanding of human nature um, parlayed his career into the marketing world. So he helped his dad's wine business go from like $3 million a year to $64 million a year in revenue in just a few years. And it's because he knows that marketers ruin everything. So he jumped on things when they were new. I mean, his email marketing open rate was like 95%. He bought the um, keyword wine and owned it for like nine months before anyone bid up because no one else was doing it at the time. And he knows that, you know, 
it's it's really important. One of his other great lessons is, you know, people walk up to someone or email them and say, can I have a job? And it's like, you know, people, the other person shuts down and it's like, you know, I don't know you. What do I owe you? But he knows that when you bring people value first, you walk their dog, you take them out to dinner, you buy a plane ticket, and then you come and ask for the job. It's the least they could do because you've done so much for them. And so, especially when it came to opening his own social media agency, that was one of the first lessons that I learned when it came to content that also applied to life, which is instead of just mailing people things and, you know, emailing them, you know, stuff they don't want, you know, go buy this, go buy that. He really, you know, worked with his clients to provide value via the social channels. So, you know, was making them laugh, educating them. And then when it came around, you know, time for the sale, it was the least that people could do because they had built this relationship where they loved the content and were following along and had such an admiration. They wanted to support this specific channel. Very interesting. Yeah. I like it. Yeah. Um, and I, I will say too, you know, he's, he talks about not getting romantic about whatever you're doing and that, you know, it's up to the market. You know, these, there's a lot of companies that give themselves a particular identity and they don't want to budge when things start to change, you know, the cab industry and, you know, and, and it's the market that always rules. And so, you know, he, he really talks about like his own agency, you know, he always says is a, a marketing in the year we live in agency. So are you marketing like it's January of 2018 or are you marketing like it's August of 1994? And, you know, people are like, why isn't this working? And this is so frustrating. And they don't, they just want to keep pushing it on people when really they're the ones that need to evolve. I think I'm in November of 2016. Okay. Well, we're getting there. We're working on the Insta stories. Let us know how Thanksgiving is. <clears throat> I love food. <laughs> um, I love that you just said Insta stories. Like m- my heart just warmed. You guys, she had to like <laughs> beat me into submission to start the Insta stories. So I've actually been doing that. Yeah. Not only were you not using them a week ago, now the word is just part of your vocabulary. Like this is such a proud moment in my life. After all that talking about snacks with Whitney, I have to tell you about this new app that I've started using. It's LifeSum, and it's an app that helps people achieve healthier and happier lives. It's really interesting to use, and I've played around with it for a little bit, but for the most part, it helps you log your meals, and you can keep track of where you are on your calories and your different nutrients, and you could track other things like exercise, water intake, and all of that. You do this little quiz, um, tell the app what you want to achieve, and um, whether it's you know gaining muscle or losing weight or I don't know just not eating crap, they will give you meal plans and you can find recipes for those meal plans. So we're going to try that this weekend. But I have been trying to keep up with logging my meals and everything. And there's this little happy apple guy, lady person, non-gendered person um, that whistles and asks you to update your weight. And it's just a really cute platform. Go to lifesum.com slash LTPF and play around with it. Maybe we can uh, put a challenge together. Make sure you go to lifesum.com slash LTPF. And now Whitney and I shall talk more about snacks. Rise was a really great place for you to land. Um, for those who don't know what the organization is, can you kind of give some background on that and then how you got into it? Absolutely. So Rise is incredible for so many reasons. Um, it's the first time that every sports league has come together 
for one cause. So it was started by Stephen Ross, who owns the Dolphins. Um, what an incredible visionary he is. Um, he basically realized that racism was not at all an archaic issue. And more than that, that we all sort of have implicit biases that we don't realize. So we see someone and instantly subconsciously make a judgment. And that has divided our world. And our neighborhoods are incredibly segregated and people just kind of hang out with people who are like them. And he realized what an issue this was for so many aspects of our of our society. And so he started Rise and the goal is to utilize um, the, the power of sports um, to unite people and to eradicate racism. Um, and, you know, he he went to every single commissioner and said, will you be a part of this? And it was the first time, you know, that every every league has come together and he picked sports for a very specific reason. No matter your economic status, your gender, your age, whatever the factor may be, everyone looks up to athletes. Um, it's the one common unifier. Um, and so he really felt like sports was the vehicle to use to be able to um, unite our country. So what does RISE stand for? It stands for the Ross Initiative in Sports for Equality. Did, um, does RISE work directly with the athletes? Yeah, absolutely. So Rise works with the leagues, with individual athletes. Um, Draymond Green had sideline racism um, shoe that he wore in games during My Cause, My Cleats. A lot of NFL players elected on their own to wear Rise Mm -hmm. sideline racism um, cleats. So any athlete who wants to get involved individually absolutely can. Um, And then the leagues have initiatives as well. And I think what a lot of people don't realize because they get so excited about the sports component and um, sort of all the celebrities involved is the fact that Rise created a curriculum um, that's now in tons of high schools across the country um, where they teach anti-racism um, to, to young kids. And it's, it's really cool. So basically Rise trains uh, high school coaches. So it's still the sports theme. And those coaches, instead of practice about one day a week, um, teach one chapter of this curriculum to their students. And um, at the end of the semester, you know, we would get all of the kids together from all these different schools and backgrounds, and they would be taking pictures saying, my new friend, and you just knew forever these neighborhoods were going to be united and these kids were going to grow up together. So, well, the sports component is super exciting. I mean, really starting at the ground, letting them these important lessons, um, I think was the most life-changing part because it's really hard to change an adult's mind. People kind of have formulated your opinion. So if you can get to a kid you know, and, and it becomes normal for them in life to have all these friends from different neighborhoods and backgrounds. That's how they're going to behave growing up as well. And when they get into adulthood, that's what will be normal for them. How did you end up at Rise? Was it through your work with Gary? Did he introduce you to everyone? Yeah. So it was actually pretty funny. You know, being from Tampa, I knew I'd always wanted to move back here and I still don't understand winter. So after four years in New York. (laughs) Dude, I don't get it either. And I lived there forever. Yeah. It's so expensive. Like there's so many clothes you need that no one told me about. Like I had to buy socks. (laughs) So, you know, I moved back home. I got a job offer in Tampa and you know, loved being back near my family. And I kind of joke, I was a snowbird that year because I moved uh, in September. So I was here for the winter. And then in March, I got a call from from Gary and said, you know, Steve Ross is starting this organization. I think you'd really be a perfect fit. And the background there is, you know, what I love about sports is how it can change people's lives and touch them, the power that it has. So when there was an organization that focused on that, I really knew it was, you know, exactly the perfect role for me. And I, I didn't think there would be an op- another opportunity where I would get to work in an organization where every commissioner was involved. So as happy as I was in Tampa, um, you know, I, I knew I, I couldn't turn it down. It's funny. I, I always say, I know when Gary calls, my life is about to change and just say yes. <laughs> and so 
I went on back to New York and it was almost as if I had never left. And it was interesting because I was doing their digital and social media. And so that role is still relatively new and as far as jobs go. And so was talking about, you know, racial equality and the issues surrounding racism. So I couldn't turn around and say, hey, Jimmy, what do I do here? Like, I didn't have a predecessor. So I really had to make a lot of judgment calls. And I think, you know, I took the job because I thought it would be exciting. But to this day, I say it changed me the most because, um, you know, I realized, too, you know, even good intention people don't necessarily know how to talk about race. We're so afraid of saying the wrong thing. And I learned a whole vocabulary and I just would call everyone I know and say, do you know that we're all only hanging out with people who look like us? Like, do we realize there are people in different neighborhoods who, who could, you know, maybe use our help, but we don't go there because it's scary, but they don't want to live there either. You know, there's so much we could be doing. And it's interesting. They do one exercise at Rise and it was uh, the single thing I did there that I think changed my life the most. Basically, they would put... Um, a list of eight different people on the board. So um, they would number them one through eight. And at first they told you one fact about each one. So CEOs, person works at McDonald's and you ranked who you wanted to be most to least. And then they told you a second factor. So the guy who, um, you know, worked at McDonald's, you found out his family owned five McDonald's and the woman who was the CEO, you found out her daughter had cancer. So after the second fact, you ranked again who you want to be most least. Third fact, same thing. And you would, it happened every single time. Anytime we did the exercise with anyone, you'd take a step back and you would hear gasps in the room because you realize your ones and your eights were never the same because the more you learn about someone, the more your mind changes. And after that exercise, you walk out of there and you never make a snap judgment about someone again without, you know, thinking that there may be more to the story. And that single-handedly would completely change our world. That's very powerful. Mm -hmm. It reminds me of, um, I, I know people have had, conflicting feelings about this thing I'm going to say, but um, there was a video that went viral of a coach. It looked like, um, or a teacher uh, who had it, maybe freshmen uh, in college kids lined up and it was male and female, but mostly male mm -hmm. um, and then varying um, racial backgrounds. And, he said things like for um, take a step forward if and it was take a step forward wow. if both of your parents are still married. Take a step forward if um, you were tutored privately. Mm -hmm. Take a step forward if um, your um, parents paid for you to come to school. Take a step forward if you got an academic scholarship. Take oh a step goodness. forward if you got a um, an athletic scholarship. Take three steps back if. And it was like something along the lines of, um, you know what it means to literally go hungry or something like that. You know, take a step forward or take a step back if one of your family members is in jail. Wow. You know, stuff like that. And it it just the point of it and people don't like it because it's almost it's an it can be embarrassing for the inevitable what it turns out to be or, right. or those from more racial minority backgrounds um it might be embarrassing for them to do this the powerful part is that the other students who were miles ahead basically never and oh and what he said was now now turn around 
and look back. The people wow. in the front turn around and look back. This is your privilege. Wow. It's so powerful. So powerful. But I can also see the, the yep. conflict there, right? Sure. Because, of course, you're utilizing, once again, yeah. you know, people of minority status to get through the thick skulls of some of us, you know, right. our own privilege. But it really was one of the most powerful ways I've seen it displayed. That's incredible. And the reactions that the people right. had. Well, and I think one of the big Gary lessons too that I think is most essential in life is empathy. And I think people are way too quick to make judgments. And I think understanding the why is essential for everything. And, you know, I always kind of use the term, you know, hurt people hurt people. Um, and a lot of times when people have a certain reaction, you know, we go on the defensive, but actually we should just be trying to figure out what got them to that point because maybe there's something we could do or, or some part we're not understanding um, to be able to, you know, make their situation better. I mean, I know, you know, and some of the athletes I've encountered and they start telling their stories and, you know, the mom was a drug dealer and um, dad was an alcoholic. So, you know, a lot of us grew up with examples of, you know, parents who, you know, sort of did the right thing and followed the career path and talked about college from an early age. If you never hear the words college, you never hear the word college and, you know, your example of making money is these people doing illegal things and that's all you ever see. How can we blame anyone for following, um, you know, that path because that's all they ever grew up with? And, you know, we kind of are very quick to call this person a criminal or bad guy or throw them away. But what we never take the time to understand is why they made the decisions that they did, what got them to that point. And I bet if we took the time to understand it and look into it, we'd have a, a whole different perspective on a lot of situations. And that is so important. Sure. And going back to your hurt people, hurt people, it's very Renee Brown-like, yeah. you know, where, you know, I think a lot of what she says is that when she is in shame, when she recognizes that she is herself feeling shame, yeah. um, she lashes out. Right. That's how she knows that she's in shame is because yeah. um, instead of dealing with the uncomfortable feelings and working through it and whatever it is, um, she gets nasty and, and, and that's exactly the same, I think. Yeah. And it, it was interesting to arise. One of the most powerful things I think we did is we would host town halls around the country. So for example, we did one in Detroit that I remember crying during, and, um, we had one professional athlete from every Detroit sports team. And then the, you know, chief of the police and, and a few people from the force and just getting everyone in a room, telling their perspective. You know, I, I hear a lot on the radio and TV now, you know, people very, vehemently taking sides about, you know, who's who they believe and what should happen. But sitting there in this room, you know, um, the police were saying, you know, we're just as scared to do our our job as anyone else would be. We just have to, you know, put on, you know, bravery that day and go out and do it. You know, we have families that we want to come home and see. And, you know, we don't want anything to happen to us, but we have to go out there and, and do our job. And, you know, another one said, you know, when we pull people over, the first thing they do is lie and say, oh, my license is at home or, you know, sorry, I just have to get to X, Y, Z. And they said, well, you know, if we're trying to build trust here, but the first thing you're doing is lying to us, how are we supposed to do that? And I think it's really, you know, doing an audit to think about, you know, are we doing everything in our own lives, you know, to make sure that we're doing the right thing as well to, to build trust and make the world a better place. But when you hear different perspectives, it's just about listening to what other people are going through because, um, you know, you hear people in the news, you know, police are bad. And you you talk to a lot of these people and you understand, you know, um, you know, some of the things that go on, you know, I think people have, would have a different perspective on it. Well, right. And I think that there are 
we have to learn to look at things um, in a multidimensional way, right? right? So in the microcosm, you have to look at the individual police officer, let's say, right? Sure. And what and what they're bringing into the situation or the person that they're pulling over, right? Or the athlete who chooses to take a knee and, and his or her background, right? What they're bringing to it. But then we have to kind of zoom out a little bit and then look at the systemic, right? So Absolutely. it's not, and, and I think this is where the problem lies is that um, often when we see things only from our point of view or the point of view of like one of our family members who happen, mm-hmm. you know, so then it's our point of view, right? I have a family member who's in the military, therefore you kneeling ha- has to be um, a, an insult. Um, or, um, you know, you're sticking up for cops lives matters. You yep. must clearly be a bigot. You know, when you don't go back the hundred thousand steps, you don't get to, to see the actual systemic issues that are affecting the whole, um, environment. So, you know, not only are there, um, deep issues within certain communities and the lack of trust because mm-hmm. of, you know, larger issues that have long been there, but there are also issues with regards to training of police officers or of community um, organizers even. And in the, you know, right ways to handle, say, a man with autism who won't get down on the ground, right? If, you know, if we don't have and then it, you know, you take another step back, right? You, You step away just from this one area of the world and you take a full step back and now you look at the nation as a whole. And why is it that they don't have the funding for that training and for those community conversations? Well, then you start looking at the DC budget situations. Mm -hmm. And so we're all really quick to make those snap judgments and to not look at the full picture from the multiple layers. of Exactly. And you know, when we walk into someone's home, we know what we're walking into, but it's not like these. Do we? Except your house. Uh, except we know there's going to be cats. Every once in a while, there's been a dater, too. Okay, <laughs> Overall, we tend to know what we're walking into when we're walking into a particular household. But, you know, it's not like, you know, in this day and age, pol- police are getting training in every particular neighborhood. So some things catch them off guard or scare them because there's not that familiarity. So I think, you know, what I've learned from this election and, and rise in general is, you know, two two major factors, which is, hang out with people who are different from you. It will mm-hmm. completely change your world. And there's probably a lot of people you could be helping. Um, and also don't make judgments. There's probably a lot to be understood. And one of the things that we ended up doing for Rise, which I loved and is still happening, is before every Dolphins game, we do what we call a community tailgate. So capitalize unity. And um, we get law enforcement together with the communities that they serve. And they get to know each other over a casual environment. And you know, eating hot dogs and bonding and having fun. So when they do run into each other on the street, they've now built a relationship and understanding. And it's not, oh, the kid with a hoodie. It's like, oh, Jeremy from the game or, you know, Officer Joey. And, you know, I think those types of things are really important. And I think everyone's first reaction is to be scared of someone who's different or to stay away. And what we should be doing is running towards them and getting to know them and asking questions. And I think that is how you build a relationship and kind of you know, bond a country is is by just having understanding of the other side, because the more we see ourselves as different, the more 
we want to stand our ground and that just divides. And I think instead we would learn so much and have a totally different perspective if we just talked it out and asked some questions. Oh, for sure. I mean, and again, we saw this um, when players were kneeling and there was just an inability all around to communicate well. Right. So not only were people um, not necessarily individually being good at communicating their rationale for kneeling, mm-hmm. um, even though it, it was broadly understood why, but I think individuals have to take on that onus of explaining how their story connects and, and why what they're doing is important, right? Um, but even when they did, people weren't listening. And um, you had to talk it, you know, people through it a little bit. And to, to, you know, get across the point that it wasn't meant to be disrespectful to the military and what the background circumstances for those particular people were. And what's unfortunate is that sometimes it takes someone else who looks like you to explain something that somebody who doesn't look like you is saying. Absolutely. Which is terrible. And we all need to be better at it. See also when men repeat things that women say and men at the table say, Oh, that's a great idea. Yeah. Mansplaining. It's a great idea, Joe. Um, Well, and I think too, you know, something that um, Ken Shropshire, who was professor at Wharton and on the rise board and um, our, the rise interim director for a little while. I remember I asked him what his perspective was on kneeling because he is, you know, has the answer to all questions. And he said something that really kind of forever stuck with me. You know, I said, do you agree with it or do you not? And he said, why are we so set on taking sides with whether we agree with it or not? How come instead we aren't saying clearly there's a problem here? How do we fix it? And I think it's very easy for people to complain. That's safe. You're part of the conversation. You're kind of being trendy, but a leader really stands up and says, you know, rises above and says, okay, I see something happening here. And this is what I'm going to do that's solution oriented to make the world a better place. And that's what we need. Well, right. It's very easy to point fingers and to blame people and to call names and to not have actual civil discourse. Right. And, um, and I think when things make us uncomfortable, right? That, that tends to be where we go. It's just like when you're in shame, right? You tend to kind of lash out to get defensive, to run to your corners as it, you know, would be. And, um, not enough people are comfortable with being uncomfortable. Absolutely. I mean, I can remember. Well, I think people are threatened by people who are different when really they're the coolest people you'll ever meet. Right. Um, yeah, I think that's a great point. And I think that, listen, I, I count myself as somebody who's fairly aware. I, I don't know. There are, there are topics that I don't know enough about and I try to educate myself more on. And when I don't know enough, I will point to somebody who does right. for people to get information. Um, and I grew up in New England. So I thought, well, I can't be racist. I can't, you know, or anything like that. And I remember having a conversation with a, uh, a woman in sports, um, who I met up there. Uh, we became really good friends. And, um, so I have a, a stepsister who is white, who married a black man and they had two kids. I was unaware that, and literally because I had just 
heard it and it didn't sound terrible. I did not know until she pointed it out to me that the word mulatto was racist. Oh. I had no idea. Yeah. Um, because it was said in a way in, in my environment. Now, now I knew that certain people in my family had racist tendencies, sure. which also made the birth of these children kind of hilarious. Right. Um, and, and obviously like it changed that person's point of view a bit. So when the word mulatto was used in a loving way towards the kids, and this is what I'd heard for years, I had no idea. That was your example. And I almost burst out in tears when she told me I felt like such an asshole. Right. I mean. You don't know what you don't know. Right. And, and she's like, oh, you can't say that. And, uh, and she's from California, which is clearly far more woke than anywhere. And <laughs> she's like, you can't say that. And I'm like, what? I didn't know that mixed race was because to me mixed seemed ruder, I guess. Yeah. I don't know. Right. And um so she texted um a very close friend of hers back in LA and he's like, Your friend is racist. Wow. And I it shook me to my core. Yeah. So I think that like we all have parts that we need to like continuously be learning about, which is why I try to, and you know, that stuck with me so bad. That's actually the first time I think I've told the story um, wow. because I'm like so ashamed about it. But at the same yeah. time, it like opened my eyes, obviously. Right. And, like, right. It changed crap, for the better. What else don't I know about this? And, and I think that feeling is part of what I had at rise too, because I've always really tried to be a good person and that's important to me. But I felt a lot of guilt that I was kind of in my bubble. And it wasn't until I got to rise that it opened my eyes that, you know, I wasn't I was hanging out with people who were a lot like me because that was my comfort zone when really what I should have been doing was getting out there. And I think people have implicit biases. They see someone and they, you know, think unfamiliarity and I'm going to stay away. Um, and I think, you know, that that has divided our country. And, you know, I consider myself someone who you know, loves everyone is, you know, friends with everyone and supports whoever anyone is. And the fact that even in my own world that I was hanging out with such like-minded people who looked alike and were in, you know, similar socioeconomic status and everything, I felt a lot of guilt that I had not made more of an effort, you know, in whatever I was doing to make sure I was befriending, you know, people from all different backgrounds. And that's one way, you know, I was really changed by Rise, but I, I held a lot of guilt and it's the worst feeling in the world. But I, I thought better to be changed now than to never be changed at all. Sure. And you did the social media for them, right? Yep. Um, was there anything on the social media front that you either learned or that you really um, kind of honed in on while you were there? So, you know, I think, um, you know, when it came to the social media stuff arise, you know, the, the different campaigns that we did, you know, to watch, you know, I came up with the sideline racism campaign and then to see, you know, on an NFL field, you know, NFL fields uh, across the country on one day, players wearing those cleats and really the impact that one campaign can have that you start online, you know, really moved me. Um, and so I think when you're doing something that you love and that's so important and that could potentially change the world, just, you know, realizing how much power social media and the internet has and that your networks have to, um, you know, really have an impact on, on society 
Um, you know, so I think that was something that was amazing for me. It was really the first time that I saw something start on the internet and then permeated to real life. And that it became a conversation that was then changing lives. Like it showed me how powerful, um, the internet really is. What happened the next time Gary called you? <laughs> so it was, it was pretty funny because um, you know, Gary is such a busy guy, you know, when we, we quickly talked about, you know, the rise opportunity back in the day. And then, um, when he called, it was from a different number and I was actually on a call, so I didn't pick it up. You know, I thought, okay, whoever this number is, you know, spam or something. So, you know, I got off my other call and listened to the message and he said, you know, Hey, wit, it's Gary. And I, you know, I, I, I stopped breathing, I think, because I knew, you know, something epic was probably about to happen again. And, He's the bit, you know, he flies to Australia for a day and back. So I knew when I missed his call, it's like, oh no, when am I going to catch him again? Like 2025. So <laughs> called back and I didn't leave my desk for hours because I was so afraid to miss his return call. Um, but when he gave me a call, he said, you know, Brandon Marshall came into my office and he's looking for someone to run the marketing for his companies. And I think you would be the perfect person. And I remember saying to Gary, um, you know, this sounds absolutely amazing, but I'm working for sort of every sports league now like what could be better than that as amazing as Brandon is and he said I think this is a, really an opportunity for you to carve your own path in the world and to put a stamp on something that has your name on it and then where did it go from there what it did like you just get Brandon Marshall's cell phone number and call him or you know did you did you send a couple of direct messages <laughs> on Twitter like how does that work so, you know, I think Gary's team and Brandon's team connected us. And then I remember I got a text message from Brandon. You know, he had been given my number and I was like, is this really happening? Like, is, is this real life? And um, we hopped on the phone. And I think like in the second conversation, I, I, I said, like, I love you. Like, I just he's the most amazing person. And I connected instantly with him and thought he was such a leader um, and it was such an easy conversation. I think, um, you know, obviously I'd been doing campaigns for athletes for, you know, an MLB and at Rise. And this was the first time I was really directly talking to one. So I didn't know what to expect. And it was just so easy to be able to talk to him that I felt incredibly comfortable. And as the conversation went on, it became even more of a dream position because what I realized at Rise, especially during the election, is that now that I have a role that intersects sports and doing good and making the world a better place. I never want to go back and do anything just for money. And I felt really lucky that I was at Rise at the time that sort of, you know, this whole conversation around Black Lives Matter and racism was happening. So we were doing such important work at a very important time. In fact, you know, to your previous question, people turned to us as the leader. I don't think I had any other job where, you know, when something happened, they looked to Rise to kind of answer the question or show them the way. And certainly, um, you know, that was, uh, I don't want to say a lot of pressure because it, it wasn't that, but it, you know, it was a, a huge opportunity and you really were given a chance to kind of, you know, formulate how the conversation was going to go and, and kind of steer, um, you know, how these issues were going to be resolved. And I think, you know, to be looked at as kind of, you know, um, the premier organization that is the only group that can kind of lead these issues was a huge deal. Um, and it was so fulfilling to be able to feel like you were changing the world. And so when I was talking to Brandon and he was sharing his his own personal story about, um, you know, being diagnosed with borderline personality disorder and all that he went through and what he's doing now um, in the NFL. I remember, you know, he said um, football is my platform. Mental health is my purpose. And I just love that he was doing something um, that was, again, 
at the intersection of sports and doing good. And that really, um, you know, in addition to Brandon being so amazing is, is what I felt like allowed me to take the position and make the leap because I was going from one organization doing good to another one that was doing good. And I think it, I felt it was very valuable for me to um, learn about different issues because I wanted to certainly, you know, I, I watched how educated I became at Rise. Um, and I always told Brandon after, you know, joining his team that I went from oblivion to awareness. And I feel like, you know, you should never turn down the opportunity to learn as much about the world and kind of how you can help it as possible. So not only were you working with um, his, him personally, um, and helping his own digital footprint, but you were working with Project 375, and then he has these um, kind of like elite performance gyms. Yeah, um, absolutely. Right? Called Fit Speed. Yeah. So it was really cool. I mean, it was the first time that I was able to, you know, work for three companies at once. Um, and it was, you know, I, I feel like the opportunity to take the job was such a gift because he wanted me to be a part of you know, everything he was touching. And so I got to work across all of his companies. So we got to make sure, you know, that they all became one big family. And, you know, really, if you think about it, when it comes to being your best self, you need, you know, your physical health and your mental fitness. And so I became so educated and up to speed and we were able to, I feel like help so many people because he was such a visionary in combining those two facets. Whereas, you know, a lot of places you can get one or the other. And it was really the first time you know, that I had encountered someone who, you know, was joining forces with both of those, um, you know, parts of what's so important in life. And, um, you know, so we got to, you know, really me being a part of all of them really allowed us to help a lot of people because, you know, you could take the athletes coming into the, you know, fit speed and, you know, working out and at first, you know, do some, uh, you know, training with them when they get into the gym about, you know, five minutes on, you know, mental health app. So they got their mind in a right place to, to perform well. And, Brandon always tells a story when he was with the Jets that, you know, he was, you know, having a down period, I guess. And, you know, the trainer came to him and said, how many hours of sleep are you getting a night? And he said, oh, five or six. And the trainer said, "Uh, uh-uh, that's not enough. And so Brandon started sleeping more and it completely turned his performance around. And it's things like that, that if you're just in a fitness facility, you know, that you may not get. And so we were really able to you know, help people in so many ways, you know, turn their lives around because we were combining the two most important things you needed to succeed in life. We've talked about Project 375 on here before with Denise White. Yep. Um, it, she was one of our first guests. But for those who uh, haven't had the time to go back to our archive, <laughs> archives, uh, episode number three. Who doesn't three, do that every day? Three, I think she was. I mean, these aren't long or anything. Um, can you... Just give a quick, what is Project 375? What are some of the programs that they do? Yeah, absolutely. So I think, um, you know, the first part of the whole organization is is how Project 375 got its name. So, you know, breast cancer has kind of pink as their color. And actually the color for mental health awareness is lime green. And if you look on the Pantone color chart, lime green is number 375. So... Project 375, yeah, has an amazing story of how it got its name. And I think that's absolutely credit to Brandon and the team in terms of, you know, what a visionary he is and how creative he is. And he wanted something, you know, that was really going to open people's eyes. So when people ask, how did you get the name? They learn this whole aspect of, of mental health awareness they wouldn't have known otherwise. So Project 375 really focuses on youth mental health first aid training. 
So I totally didn't know what that was when I started and then it ended up completely changing my life. Um, So basically um, Project 375 goes around the country doing what I would call suicide prevention training. So working with adults who interact with kids on a daily basis. So that could be teachers, coaches, parents, and it's an eight hour course that really educates them on when someone around them, you know, one of these kids is having a mental health crisis. How do you recognize it? And then how do you stabilize it? Um, and, you know, there's so many important lessons, you know, when we're talking about the stuff at Rise and the stuff that Project 375 does that are essential to saving lives and to, to living a happy, healthy life that we never learn about in school. So thank goodness Project 375 is doing this kind of work because, you know, there's you know, no more pressing issue um, in this day and age than, uh, you know, sort of mental health awareness. Um, and, and I think, you know, one of the most amazing stories is we did a training outside of, um, you know, on the West Coast. And I remember that, um, you know, we it was about 30 people in the room and one of the teachers uh, the next day went back to his classroom and said, you know, to the kids, is anyone thinking of doing anything harmful to themselves? And one kid stayed after and said, you know, I was planning to take my life tonight. And the teacher said, well, how? And the kid opened his backpack and it was full of pills. And because this teacher went through the youth mental health first aid training, he rushed this kid to a crisis center and that kid is alive and thriving today. Oh my God. Yep. And so, you know, Brandon is, you know, obviously a phenomenal football player, but look what he's doing. I mean, he has been, you know, first of all, it's often that, you know, often the case that athletes and minorities are two groups that don't talk about vulnerabilities. He's both. And when he was diagnosed instead, you know, everyone told him, don't tell anyone about this. It'll, you know, you won't get another contract, you know, family members even. And the guy held a press conference. I right. mean, talk about bravery and the ability to change the world. And it, it really is so extraordinary because he's heard so many stories since of people have said, well, because you came out and talked about it, it's made it okay for me. Um, and he saved so many lives just of, just because he took that one step. And this is a guy who, you know, signed contracts to play football. He didn't have to do any of this. And he realized what a platform he was given and, you know, was one of the great minds behind the My My Cause, My Cleats program where, you know, players wear, you know, cleats that showcase a cause that they care about. And I think something that I learned in the, you know, with Project 375 is that we need to redefine success. So a lot of, you know, the suicides, you know, I, I noticed were taking place surprisingly in very privileged communities. And I learned that, you know, in, in asking the parents and, and talking to them and trying to understand why this was happening, that these kids felt an immense pressure to be something that they weren't. And really, everyone is great at something. But we kind of send kids these messages that, you know, A's mean success and you can be one of these five things. But there's so many different jobs in the world. I don't know why we're doing that. And you could tell these kids, you know, were feeling such a pressure that they couldn't live up to their friends or their parents' expectations. And so they really felt like the only way out was was taking their own life. And you know, if we had just said whoever you are is great, I think it would really stop a lot of the, you know, stress that that kids are going through. Well, and I think, you know, in a lot of those situations too, there's this um, level of loneliness mm-hmm. um, and again, shame, yep. right? Because shame can only hide in the dark. And, you know, when there are a lot of times, particularly in those types of affluent neighborhoods, mm-hmm. there is a disconnect of emotion and connection with your own family sometimes, yep. especially if you feel like a bit of an outsider. Right. Um, and I think that that happens in all types of families. It doesn't Absolutely. even have to be well-to-do families. And, you know, at the end of the day, one of the things that breeds um, suicidal thoughts 
um, is that shame and loneliness and not feeling like anyone has ever been able to get out of it and not thinking you yourself can get out of it. Right. right? And if the more people who, who talk about depression, anxiety, any mental health issue, um, borderline personality disorder, you know, or BPD prior to, to Brandon, everybody thought it was schizophrenia, right? right? Everybody, which by the way, there are plenty of quote unquote successful people who live with schizophrenia. Absolutely. Um, And I think, you know, to that point, Brandon and his wife always say, you know, you are not schizophrenic or you are not borderline. You have these things because it does not define you. And I think they've done an amazing job of breaking the stigma because I think, you know, exactly what you're saying that people often feel alone and they think they are down and out and they feel like they're the only ones going through whatever is happening in their lives. And I think one thing I really learned at project 375 is, you know, these different issues have names. They're called something. And not only are they called something, you can get help for them. And I think if we just made people aware of that, um, you know, this is actually something that exists and there are resources to make you feel better. People, you know, wouldn't feel so alone. And, you know, Brynn and his wife always talk about the average suicidal thought is only 90 seconds. And then after that, it tends to go away. And it's like people make so many reactionary decisions, you know, in in that period of time. And it's like, you know, I think their mission to break the stigma, you know, is going to continue to change the world because if people say, you know, I'm feeling this way or that way, you know, other people can connect them to resources and they'll be okay. They don't have to feel alone. Right. And it's one of the reasons why um, I've been open about it. I mean, it's in my speaker bio. Mm -hmm. It's um, we've talked about it numerous times on here. Um, uh, the fact that I've lived with, I am not, right? right. Um, and just people knowing that there's somebody like Brandon Marshall who has, you know, a mental illness or me, it, it, not that I'm like anything, you know, up there with Brandon Marshall, but, you know, there are people who are out in the world who are quote unquote successful who have high-profile jobs, there are more people that you can even imagine with high-profile CEO, C-suite types of positions that that deal with mental health issues. Absolutely. And they're just quiet about it because they're afraid of what, what weakness or vulnerability is really the right word will, um, will mean for them and their, and their reputation. So... You know, I've um, ever since I heard about Project 375 and Denise started talking to me about it back, um, you know, I don't know, like a year ago now. I just I'm I'm so impressed by it and with what they do and love that you were a part of it, which is kind of how we met. Um, And um, and it's it's kind of led you now to this really cool solo journey that you've got going on. And I'm so proud of you for kind of taking this leap, um, which by the way, my 2018 theme is take the leap. It's in my little journal thing. Um, Anywho, uh, by the way, the website is up to date, everyone. I got (laughs) that done. Um, So anyway, but like you took this giant leap, which is awesome. I mean, you're, you know, I'm not, you're only 30. I don't want to like minimize 30, but like, you're only 30 and you're this jump. You've already, I mean, you and I have spoken about how many meetings you've had, which I find incredible. And you, you have clients and it's awesome. So what the hell is social victories? Well, I'm so glad you asked. And yeah, I'm really excited. And 
you know, I'm so grateful for every opportunity I had up until this point, because I think it led me um, to this particular place where, like you said, I could take the leap and, and start social victories. Um, so it's a marketing and social media consulting company specifically for those in the sports world. And so, um, you know, we work with athletes and, um, you know, different companies and, and anyone sort of who has a, a tie to the sports world to help them stay relevant and to stay on top of the latest social media tactics. And, you know, and we talked about this, you know, when we, I was with Rise and Project 375 is that there's so much happening out there and so much noise, you know, it's really important to, um, you know, put out content that really brings value and to stay on top of the latest, you know, uh, the latest, um, you know, Insta stories. Yeah. Insta stories. Yeah. The the latest, I would say evolutions in the social (laughs) media world, because they're all happening so fast. And unless you kind of speak the lingo, um, you would have no idea that they're evolving, but it, it goes back to the Gary theory that if you're not one of the first to jump on it, no one's going to care if you're the thousands. So there's a real opportunity, you know, just to give you an example of some of the stuff, um, you know, the social victory stuff. So there's, um, you know, a product called Superphone where um, it allows uh, fans to text their favorite athletes and athletes. Okay, this yep. explains something. Never mind, go on. Okay, I just saw the light bulb go off. I, I sent, <laughs> so I sent an SOS text to Denise one day uh-huh. because I saw Brandon put, put out his Brandon phone. Oh, put that out was his us, by number. the way. That was our idea, so. Yeah, and I was like, <laughs> um, I'm very attuned to, you know, mental health related things. Right. And, like who's blowing up his phone? Well, I also know like some of the some of the symptoms or reactions when, when mood elevations hit certain peaks. And so I was like, I know he's not bipolar, but right. <laughs> that's kind of a really manic thing to do is just to put your cell phone number out there for the world. So I'm furiously tweeting her or texting her, not <laughs> tweeting her. And she's like, chill. It's okay. Yeah. Right. <laughs> well, actually you hit the nail on the head because that was super phone. So it definitely caught your attention, which was what we want to do. And in the first month, uh, he got over 44,000 messages. And so, um, you know, whereas email open rates these days have maybe, you know, 10 to 20 percent, Superphone has 80 to 90 percent. So, you know, we really work with our clients to stay on top of the latest technology. So their brands, um, you know, are relevant and, you know, in front of the eyes of who they're looking to reach. And, you know, you don't, it's, it's not worth marketing just to market. You know, you really want to build a relationship, um, you know, with, with your potential clientele and with your fan base and, you know, get to know them over time. And, and that's what will last forever. If you try and sell a product, you maybe get them for that one product, but then you've lost them moving forward. So it's really important with our clients that we have, you know, social media and marketing strategies. So, you know, we're staying on top of sort of the latest technologies and, you know, doing cool stuff, but it's all stuff that their fans want to see. And it's actually, you know, building a relationship with them instead of kind of using the marketing term, even though that's what it would be called. It's really, you know, building their brand and building a relationship and and doing things that are authentic um, to whomever the athlete or the client is at the time, um, but that their fan base absolutely enjoys. Because I think marketing has this like taboo feeling around it and it doesn't have to. I mean, the whole point of marketing is to build the bridge and build the relationship. And we're kind of, you know, turning the tables. And making sure that with our clients, like everything we do is what people want to be a part of. And so, 
you know, you're building this brand. And like I said, the relationship where you're doing so in a way that people want to be a part of, and that's exciting. And, you know, I think you get one chance to come out of the gate and make a first impression and you want to do it the right way. You know, I always say people never forget how you made them feel and consumers are the exact same way. So when you're, you know, coming out of the gate with your brand, you know, people are going to have an instant reaction to it and they're going to remember how your content made them feel and, you know, you want it to be positive and blow them away so that they forever want to come back. And, you know, now obviously, you know, social media platforms become so oversaturated with content. So what is it that's going to have thumb stopping power? What is it when you're scrolling through that's going to make people really stop in their feeds? How do you set yourself apart? And so I think when it comes to social victories, you know, I've been lucky that I've been able to work with so many different clients in the sports world. And it's just really taking that expertise and, um, you know, the ideas that we did with, you know, when I was in-house at all these companies and being able to apply them to all different types of clients. What did you think of my Insta stories from the Women's March? I thought they were great because you really showed, you know, behind the scenes content. And um, you, you, I think what's great about you is that everyone gets to know exactly who you are and everything you do on a daily basis kind of um, represents fundamentally who you are. And so when you go and showcase, you know, Insta stories, you know, a place like that, you're really giving people a behind the scenes look. And then we didn't have to go stand in a crowd, <laughs> but we also got <laughs> to be there. <laughs> that is true. Yeah. Um, I'm just impressed that like you're using Insta stories. Like it's, you know, like a word that's been in your vocabulary for 20 years, like throwing it around, like no big deal. Yeah, the word is fine. Me trying to actually record it always takes me an extra five minutes because I forget where to push and I've got two accounts and then I'm just very confused you about so life. right now. <laughs> it's really like you record it, you hold your finger on a button and then press like send. So let's just like call a spade a spade. <laughs> What's the other great thing that I told you about Insta stories? Do you remember our lesson of part two of why Insta stories and Snap stories are so valuable right now? They up me in the algorithm. Um, okay, uh, sure, we'll take that. No. Um, so you can swipe up on them mm -hmm. to a landing page. So, for example, right. How many people, you know, right now are going to, you know, on their own www.whatever.com. However, nobody types the W's. Okay, all right, but you get the point, and you're probably right. Um, but when you're, you know, everyone, there's so many eyes right now on Insta stories and Snapchat, for example, 51% of the country of, you know, between 13 and 31 year olds are on Snapchat. I mean, people watch the, the last Olympics at a higher rate on Snap stories than they did on live TV. And so all these eyes are on these platforms right now. So they're watching every Insta story because they want to stalk what's going on in your life. And then you show them, you know, something, you know, drive to a landing page and they can swipe up and go right to that website. And they're going to click there because it's still exciting. They want to see where you're taking them. It's still new. It hasn't been oversaturated versus if you tried to send them a link in an email, you'd have no luck. So it's really just, you know, like we said, like staying on top of the latest technologies and evolutions and, you know, Insta stories, you know, are super exciting, but you can also now drive people to where you want them to go to see the rest of your content. Fair point <laughs> that I completely forgot about, but I know that it happens because my friends have my friend who used to name nail polishes now has an extremely ridiculously successful blog that she makes money off of. And like, I have no, I, I have no idea how. I admire those people who make money from blogs. But she's been doing it for, it, she just celebrated her eighth year. Oh my goodness. So, so she started way back. And, um, and so she does it on her 
Insta stories. And swipe up to the blog. And snaps, maybe? Snaps, too. I have a personal snap. We'll, we'll get there. We talked about okay. that. We are not doing Superphone anytime soon. <laughs> right, but that was just an example of something that's out there of how you stay on top of the latest technologies to stay relevant. Also, really brave to use this season. <laughs> well, you know, it was pretty amazing because we actually launched it after Brandon got hurt. So you never know kind of what you're going to get. I mean, uh, New York. Sports- it's actually a little safer after you're hurt. I think. Yeah. Uh, you know, but New York sports fans, it's not like they let up, you know, it's like, we'll give you a break for these months of the year. That's not sort of how the mindset works. So, you know, we didn't know where you're going to get, but people were so excited that he wanted to connect with them, that we got so many messages of appreciation and so many talking about the mental health stuff that, you know, they've been willing to, you know, go, go seek help or, you know, open up about the struggles that they've had in their own lives because branded it and they were using Superphone to reach out and tell them that. And, you know, um, you ask for guidance and that kind of thing. And it really became this additional tool of connectivity where he could not only connect with fans, but really continue to help change the world and, and um, you know, sp- spread the word of mental health awareness. Oh my God, I love that. Mm-hmm. Um, so tell me who your latest client is. So very excited. Um, we just started working with Brandon Copeland, um, currently with the Detroit Lions. And um, he is a total inspiration to me. So he currently only lives on about 10 to 15% of his salary. He graduated from Penn. Um, and this off season, he interned on wall street, which is something I, as a non-athlete have never even gotten close to. Um, so, you know, I love that he, um, you know, realizes football is not going to last forever and he's doing all these things to educate himself and get up to speed. And I think he's a real inspiration to a lot of people. You know, you see a lot of kids growing up and, um, they say, you know, I want to be a professional athlete growing up and that's kind of the be all end all. And he's really showing that, you know, while you can make it to the top of the top in professional sports, that there's also important parts of your life that you need to be able to help round out to make sure you have a fulfilling life. And he sets a great example to also focus on your education and, you know, to look at things outside of sports as well so that you're set up no matter what you end up doing. Yeah, he reminds me a lot of Vincent Jackson um, in the way that he, you know, was very entrepreneurial and um, and had had multiple businesses by the time he um, stopped playing. Right. And I think, you know, when I look back at kind of an overarching storyline of working at Rise and, you know, when I met Brandon, one of the things he said to me, Brandon Marshall, was let's build something great by building each other up. And then you know, now getting to work with Brandon Copeland, like what extraordinary human beings, inspirations, examples, you know, people changing the world. And I think oftentimes there's kind of an athlete, I mean, a stigma around athletes. And we hear, you know, some of the bad stories in the news, but I have been so blown away at what extraordinary individuals, you know, a lot of these professional athletes are and um, the work they're doing to kind of change the world and not letting, um, their role as an athlete define them and more so using it as a platform and a launching pad to, you know, um, what they can do to use their power to kind of make the world a better place. Three things you would tell anybody about what not to do on social media. Okay. So, um, you know, I think it's really important to know that social media is a live microphone. Um, so whatever you say is going to last forever, even if you try and delete it. Um, I think it's really important to not post when um, you're feeling some sort of extreme emotion, especially a negative one, um, and to subtweet or to vent. 
um, because, you know, it's, it's kind of like, you know, they tell you, you know, don't send an email when you're angry. It's, it's kind of the same thing because you'll probably regret it and there's no way to take it down. So I think it's really important to take a deep breath when you're kind of angry and to really think about what you want to say and recalibrate before you send something out there. Um, I also think, you know, social media is now the front lines of your brand. So it's how people get to know you. So think about, you know, what you really want to put out there because it's going to last forever. So, you know, um, I definitely don't recommend if you're heavily drinking or something that, you know, maybe misconstrued um, or show sort of a negative side of you, like just put the phone away, um, you know, and, uh, you know, don't put your best foot forward when it comes to social media, because, you know, it is how you're going to be judged by a lot of people who have never met you. And so make smart judgment calls in terms of the content that you put out. Um, and I think thirdly, um, you know, it's, it's really important. This, this may sound silly, but you know, to, as soon as you can kind of grab as many digital outlets that are tied to your name, because, you know, they ultimately sort of become your voice, um, and they represent you. And, you know, if you're able to grab your full name and, um, you know, in some way, you know, identify yourself or, or tie your name to your handles, then you're going to be able to be the person who speaks for yourself. Like, you know, I, I always make sure, you know, the athletes that we work with and the companies we had, you know, anytime we come out with sort of a new product or launch a new line that we go and grab the social handles because you don't want anyone to be able to speak for you. You want to be able to put your voice out there. Um, and I think on the, on the positive side, social media connects the world. I mean, you know, I, you know, have met so many people through just being reaching out and, and sending a message. And I would think, you know, the worst that can happen is that you don't hear back or some, someone says no, but don't be afraid to make connections and kind of build a community with people who inspire you that you come across on social media because you never know who you may re out, reach out to where you, you say something that changes their life or can, you know, you can connect them to something. And I think, you know, being brave and not, you know, not being afraid to send a message to someone you don't know is something that I would highly encourage. That sounds like a great note to end on. Thank you for being here, Whitney. This has been the best. How do people get in touch? How do they follow you? Give all the things. Perfect. Um, okay. So um, from the Social Victories side, the email address is just info at socialvictories.com and the website is socialvictories.com. You'll see a really cool video of a stadium playing um, when you get to the website and worth watching, I promise. Um, and then in terms of um, my personal handles, I'm just Whitney Holtzman on Instagram and W Holtzman on Twitter um, and would love to hear from anyone who listened today and get their thoughts. Great. Thank you again Thank so you. much. Make sure you all follow and uh, reach out to us. Thanks again to Whitney for popping by my apartment and hanging out with Jerry and I. Uh, we obviously had a great time, but I really love that our conversation went where it did and um, I hope you all don't mind my sharing of a very uh, uneasy and kind of shameful experience of my own that, you know, I think just shows that we all have so much more to learn when it comes to issues of um, race and understanding other people's point of views. Um, I am going to read a couple of reviews that you all have left in the iPod, Apple podcast, whatever the heck it's called now. Um area. <laughs> this is so that maybe some of you will leave more. Um, they make me feel so, so happy. So uh, Jen Y. Lawyer wrote, Bobby Sue is a wonderful host who knows how to extract 
powerful conversations from her guests. Her focus on highlighting women in sports is inspiring. Keep up the great work. Thank you, Gen Y Lawyer. I think I know who you are and I really appreciate it. Um, and then this one really made me happy on a day that I was really stressed out this past week. So thank you to whomever this is. The Grind to Greatness wrote, as a lifelong athlete, it's great to tune into a show that highlights women in sports-related careers. I had a dream of being a sports agent lawyer and was told that it was a man's world by every man I met with for coffee to try and get my foot in the door. My young and impressionable heart believed them and I gave up the pursuit. If only I had women like Bobby Sue and her guests in my life, I may have kept pushing. These conversations are so important. And I'm not kidding. I got really teary when I read that. I, it was a it was not the best day for me. <laughs> and that just really lifted my spirits. So, um, you know, if you all can just make sure you're subscribing and sharing the podcast and rating and reviewing it, it really does matter for how whatever the stupid algorithm thing is um, and how new people find us. So, you know, you could do it on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, and then you could also catch the podcast on RadioInfluence.com. Those are my guys, Jerry and Jason, or on our website, which is LTPFPod.com. And then... As I mentioned, and we gave you a break during the episode, but just in case you ran to get water instead, you can follow us on all the shows, social, excuse me, at LTPF pod. And you can follow me at Bobby Sue. And if you want to write me a long dissertation, you can email it to LTPFpod at gmail.com. This is Jim Fannin, America's Zone Coach, and I'm excited about bringing my new podcast, The Jim Fannin Show, to RadioInfluence.com. Each week, we're going to talk about the zone and how this mindset can help you in all facets of your life. I'll give you all the tools you need to change your life and help guide you to become your genuine, authentic best self. With the only proven blueprint for attracting the zone mindset, I've helped transform millions of lives. In my 40 years of experience, I've coached CEOs and senior executives from 350 of the Fortune 500 companies in 50 different industries. I've coached professional athletes, Olympic gold medalists, Hall of Famers, all pros, all stars, entertainers, and so many more to help them gain the tools and techniques to create a life of simplicity, balance, and abundance. And now it's my privilege to bring these methods to you every week, along with some of my champion good friends as special guests. If you want to get in the zone in all you do, check out The Jim Fannin Show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Google Play, and of course, RadioInfluence.com.